Turn to Mark chapter 14, please. Mark 14, don't forget. Collecting toys for the Salvation Army. You're doing good, but keep it up. Very close to our hearts at this time of the year. We're also going to go to Ephesians chapter 1. As we teach today, my heart is with those who can't be with us today for various reasons. And there are several, some of whom I've been in contact with. And so the Holy Spirit will embrace them with his grace as well as those who are here. In our absence, Pam and I had the privilege of, we stayed around here. Incidentally, I never really left. But we did go down to the Sight and Sound Theater to see the Christmas production and I should report to you that it's well worth seeing. And there is an upcoming production called Queen Esther, which would be great for mothers and daughters and daughters and fathers and families and everybody to go to. It sounds really good. And I don't think you can get on the Christmas train until next year, but I do recommend it. It's good for taking kids and grandkids, etc. So we bring a good... Thumbs up for that. Lots of angels in this one flying all over the place. So you have to be have a strong heart when you go there. Yeah, you might be as afraid as the shepherds were on a few occasions. Um, but I again, I want to thank the speakers in my absence who did such a remarkable job. And like I said, I never really left. You're in my heart both to die and to live with you. Second Corinthians. Seven, three. And for the congregation to come, keep this place sacred by your presence here, and by the presence of the Lord in you. And I appreciate that very much. Now, we have a few mild regulations when we come here. When we come here, it's a formal occasion. It's a historic occasion. Because whenever believers like yourselves who are participating in the faithfulness of Christ and in the sanctifying grace of God, gather together in the name of Jesus Christ. It is an historic occasion, more historic than impeachment hearings, more historic than what's going on in the world. And because you are here as part of the divine solution to the problem of evil and as part of the redemption of history, the redemption of time itself, as you go forth from this place in the logos of God in your hearts as living epistles. And so, as Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Nevertheless, there is a yoke and there is a burden. It's light and it's easy, but it's a responsibility. Our responsibility is our easy yoke, light burden. It's an academic burden under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, it is a yoke and it is a burden. Therefore, as James 1 says, be swift to hear, prompt to hear, not late, not tardy. If something is an appointment that you consider important, you get there on time. Now, I know there are times when we can't. I was almost late myself today, but there are times when for various emergent reasons, we can't make it on time. But if you can make it on time, make it on time. Distractions are the enemy of concentration on the word of God. And it is a distraction to those who bear the yoke. So uh, as we also meet, there's a second law, be swift to hear, to hear, to listen, to be slow to speak or offer your opinion. The only speaking that should be going on in a time like this is the one who's speaking the word of God, whether it's here or in the classrooms. And if you have something to say that's more important than what the Spirit is saying to the churches, then go ahead and say it. Otherwise, don't say anything. That even includes everybody who serves here, the deacons, the booth, the security. The only security talking that should be going on is the discipline of the security is that if there's something that involves security and is emergent as a result of security, then they talk. Otherwise, they're disciplined and do not speak. When people come in late, well, we're going to allow that for a little while. I'm, I'm toying with the idea of closing the doors at about 10.10, 10, though, so you can look in the windows. 
but there's no more windows. <clears throat> so you say, what, what, why are you doing this? We haven't seen you in a while. Well, it's good to be back, but if I get a, a little order on the way down here, tighten up the ship, then I'll tighten up the ship. And that's what we're going to do. Be swift to hear, prompt to hear. It's a formal occasion because we're in the presence of the living God. And we're in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ who moves among the seven lampstands. And we are in the presence of the Holy Spirit of grace to whom to do outrage is something unthinkable in Hebrews 10.29. So what the Spirit is saying to the churches is what we are available for. I entrust my spirit to the Lord every time I come here. And I pray for safe travel for everyone who travels both ways. I entrust the spirit of Tetelestai or Tetelestai phalanx to the Lord so that you can be receptive to the word of God that's salvific and grace-filled and will have an impact not only on you in your interior but on those in your periphery. And so this is extremely important. What we do here has an importance that is so momentous as to be not only historical, but redemptive of history. Redeeming the time for the days are evil, as Ephesians 5.16 says. So when you step into the house of God, be more ready to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Sacrifice of fools includes talking because you think what you have to say is more important than what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. And that's an insult to the spirit of grace. So I just thought I'd put that in perspective. And it's good to be back. In the past few weeks, there, were, there was an occasion in Indiana where I had the privilege of speaking as a memorial for Dave Tom Jr., as you know. And it's up on the website. It's only 23 minutes if you wish to hear it. I wish his children's messages were also up there. They were so remarkable. Dave was my first point of contact 41 years ago. In fact, 41 years ago today, my first point of contact in this western Pennsylvania area. Someone owed him a favor, and that person who owed him a favor owned an airplane with a jet engine. It had five passengers. And I came down with four other men and spoke for the first time in the Indiana area at IUP for 10 minutes on November 18th, 1978. So my first contact was with Dave, and it seems like a full circle to be able to speak highly of him. And I do recommend that you hear the eulogy because it is historical for our church. It is, if you had such a thing as founding fathers of a church, Dave Tom was a founding father, and he is in my heart both to die and to live, and live comes last. Life is always the last word. So it's very good to have been here for 41 years, and the next 41 are going to be better. So Mark 14, 61, I'm still teaching. Someone said, I heard your series. It was good. It's not over. We're still in the doctrine of the mystery Sunday mornings. We're still in doing and living theology on Wednesdays. I did copious reading in my hiatus, especially on Ephesians and Hebrews, but a lot of other stuff too. Mark fourteen sixty one, But he, Jesus, kept silent and did not answer anything. Again, the high priest questioned him. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Please notice that, the son of the blessed one. 62, I am. Ego, Amy. I am, said Jesus. And all of you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power, the omnipotent power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
We'll also be going later on to Ephesians. Now, I've been using the analogy of cross-pollination for our ongoing series, two of them. Cross-pollination, you can even look it up in American Heritage College Dictionary, as I did, fifth edition, has to do with, quote, the transfer of pollen from an anther of a flower of one plant to the stigma of another plant of the same species. We could say a lot about the stigma of the cross, but we won't right now. The verb cross-pollinate has the figurative meaning to influence or inspire another, especially in a reciprocal manner. The second meaning of cross-pollination in that same dictionary is called influence or inspiration between or among diverse elements. In the definition, they quote Ralph de Tolonato, Ralph de Tolonato's definition of jazz, the music genre. And listen to this carefully. Jazz, he says, is fundamentally the cross-pollination of individual musicians playing together and against each other in small groups. Now, this reminds me of the collaboration of theologians who play sometimes together in dogmatic or systematic theology and sometimes against each other in what we call dialectic or dialectical theology. The Wednesday series is a theological one. Sunday's, today's series, has been and is a doctrinal series. These two series have influenced and inspired each other, like cross-pollination. And that is on purpose. It's obvious that we could play with this word cross-pollination, in a profound way, because it is with the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that we concern ourselves, whether we're dealing with the doing and the living of theology or with a New Testament doctrine like the mystery. Jesus Christ and him crucified is at the heart of the mystery. And it's the primary lens through which we come to hear, to see, to know, and even to imitate God. Or to do and to live theology. Moreover, instauration, which I call it, the universal and the individual, the external and the interior effect of the cross of Christ, is that pollen that's mutually transferable from each of these series, reciprocally inspiring and influencing each other. And with a design pastorally by me, doubly inspiring you. In our DLT series, we've been considering Bernard Lonergan's theology of the triune God. He's the first one to introduce me to theology as a collaboration. He's spoken of five notions in God. These are aptly represented on our website, incidentally, on the slider. I was interested to see the slider on the doctrine of the mystery that Jeremy put up. Five figures are depicted there, interestingly enough. And whomever they are intended to picture, I like to think of them as the five notions in God. The five notions in God are one. God is one. One in essence, one in being, one in name, one in act. Secondly, there are four divine relations in God. Paternity, filiation, active and passive spiration. These will be unfolded. Don't worry about understanding them all now. There are three distinct divine subjects or persons that's the third notion in God. And these persons are defined by those relations. They are persons in relations. 
So the three divine persons are persons in relation. The father is paternity. The son is filiation. The spirit is passive and active spiration. The father and the son together as a single originating principle are active spiration. The spirit is passive spiration. And it will be shown that the Christian believer is granted the privilege, and that's you, granted the astounding privilege of a created participation in the divine solution to the problem of evil. The Christian believer is granted the privilege of a created participation, more specifically in active and passive spiration, or the breathing of God, which yields to a graced imitation of God and a real participation in the divine solution to the problem of evil in the present evil age and a real participation in the redemption of history itself. This participation happens as a result of instaration and not without it. That's the key word. Instaration. That little root word that means the cross. Instaration. This happens, this redemption of history, and this participation in it by you and me is called instaration. The redemption of history doesn't happen without it. There are two eternal and internal divine processions in God. That's the fourth notion in God, N-O-T-I-O-N. First, there's the procession of the Son, and secondly, there's the procession of the Spirit. And these are internal, eternal processions. There are two divine missions, and those are also of the Son and the Spirit. But these two divine missions are directed, as we've been teaching in DLT, to an external term, an external divine objective. As I put it in DLT 10, the 10th message, in God there are two divine missions which have an appropriate external term which we may call the divine objective with regard to all of created reality, including time, itself a creation of God. The appropriate external term or the term or objective to which these divine missions are directed is precisely related to the doctrine of the mystery. Here's the cross pollination. Because that external term is called the mystery of God's will. The mystery of God's will is his now revealed and no longer secret intention toward all of created reality over the course of all time. This is an intention which involves the bringing into existence and the giving of life, eternal life, to all things and all beings so that God will be all in all. The process leading to this goal is called instauration. This external term that we call it, to which the divine missions are directed, this final goal and objective of God, who is as to the irreducible act of his essence, is love. This goal is realizable only through the universal impact of the cross of Christ, that which I have chosen to call instauration, a doctrine I'm building out of a thousand hints. Now, I think it would be fitting to address an incredibly dense passage of Scripture, and I spent countless hours studying this little passage of Scripture. That passage consists of a notoriously run-on sentence. I can still remember Mrs. Lape, my first grade teacher, saying, Alan, that was a run-on sentence. And you, did, you should have put a period there, 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 and there. And you would have had several understandable sentences. I still remember her doing that. Mrs. Lape, she was great. I, used, I thought I flunked a paper once, and she... I brought the paper up to her, and a C back then wasn't a C. It was correct, and a C-plus was correct, then some. 
she kept staring at the paper and then looking up at me and staring at the paper. And I was like falling apart. And then she took a red crayon and went, see, on the plus on the paper. Mrs. Lape. I always remember my early teachers because after 10th grade, I didn't learn a thing. But instauration is the appropriate external term. I think then we're going to look at a sentence that's a notoriously run-on sentence. Paul's run-on sentence makes mine look like a short, dense sentence. That run-on sentence was written and dictated by an apostle on spiritual ecstasy. This explosive run-on sentence is found in that which is traditionally called the Epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. In this passage, we may consider, and I think we can rightly call it this, and it has been called this by Marcus Barth, the son of Karl Barth, whom I read this past few weeks, a digest or a summary of the entire epistle. And it's Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. In the Greek, it's one sentence, a run-on sentence. Should be about eight periods in it. Now, we're going to begin by considering the first two introductory verses first, which is Ephesians 1, 1, and 2. And this study will fall under the doctrine of the mystery, and it will cross-pollinate with doing and living theology, inasmuch as we'll be endeavoring to do a theological exegesis of this passage with the intent of identifying the mystery, as it's called, in its full glorious splendor. And we may also tackle a similarly dense and momentous passage in Hebrews in doing and living theology starting Wednesday. Now, as we execute together this theological exegesis, I'm going to proceed on the basis of two suppositions about Ephesians. One, I'll proceed on the supposition that the Apostle Paul is the author of this epistle. And two, that this epistle is the primal, I call it, primal epistle of Paul. In fact, that's what I'll, if I were going to do a series on Ephesians, I'd call it Paul's primal epistle. It is a primal epistle. By primal, I do not mean that it was chronologically the first epistle that Paul wrote or dictated. In fact, first and second Thessalonians were probably written 10 years earlier by the apostle or dictated by him. By primal, what I mean is that the letter written from Paul's incarceration, he was in prison probably in a place called Atamea in Asia Meyer, not, not too far from Ephesus. This epistle was a pristine account of Paul's gospel. And it was addressed to a mostly pagan readership, possibly in Laodicea originally, as if Colossians 4.16 is to be believed, and I believe it is. I believe that he originally wrote it to Laodicea in Asia Minor, circa A.D. 50. It was written, in my opinion, before Romans. In this letter, there's no mention of justification, as in Romans and Galatians, because Paul's not dealing with the exigency of a law-based gospel in opposition to his gospel. That's why he wrote Romans. That's, he didn't need to do that in the epistle to the Ephesians. Nor is there controversy about the future general resurrection or the need for correction of unjustifiable enthusiasm as Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians. Nor is there a controversy about his apostolic authority as in 2 Corinthians or Galatians. Ephesians, we'll call it that, is the essential Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles, writing to an assembly within the horizon of his apostolic authority that was granted to him by Christ Jesus, the King of Kings. Now, it's not my purpose to do an exhaustive exegesis of this passage. 
1, 3 to 14, beginning with 1, 1, really. But it's merely to pray, place the mystery for you, to place the mystery in an epistolary and exegetical context. So with the words, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, Ephesians 1, 1, as you see, by the will of God, dia thalematos theu, dia You'll see this in print. I'm not going to take the time to write it up there because I'll miss communicating the whole message. Dia thelematas theu, the will of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul strikes the chord that's critical to our understanding of the mystery. Immediately, the will of God is at the forefront. Thelematas theu. The will of God. Now we've run into this word before, thelema, while considering the topic of Jesus Christ's meritorious obedience to the will of God, his Father's will. His obedience to the extent of death on the cross or the death of the cross was with respect to his father's will. We saw that in Mark 14, 36, Matthew 26, 42, and compared it with Hebrews 10, 7, 10, 9, and 10, 10. The will of God was directly related to the cross of Christ. The thelema, thelema that's T-H-E-L-E-M-A, of God will come up again in Ephesians 1, 5 with regard to the phrase... regarding the predestination of believers. And it will come up again most notably for our purposes in Ephesians 1.9 with regard to the phrase, the mystery of his or God's will. Ta musterio tu thelematas autu. The mystery of God's will. So immediately we're confronted not with the will of the creature, or with human or angelic free will, as it's called. But we're confronted with the will of God, which we will learn is ultimately free. God's will is free. And it's incontestably and unconditionally gracious and universally salvific. We're up to the will of man. Everyone wouldn't be saved. Some people just got to go to hell, especially the people that ripped you off. Paul is an apostle by the decision and will of God, though that may be disputed, and it's disputed today by scholars. Disputed by men and angels, both during the course of his missionary ministry and now. Paul is an emissary of God's good news, and he's a willing imperial slave of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Once an avowed enemy of the gospel, he became an envoy of the gospel by the same will of God that subjected all of creation to futility in itself and to hope. To the saints, that's all that appears in a lot of manuscripts, not to the saints in Ephesus. That's an addition. Because of this, the epistle has the evident task of addressing all those who have been awakened to faith in the gospel throughout all time, including our own. There is a universality to this primal epistle. Again, to the saints is all that most of the manuscripts say, not an Epheso, but to the saints, period. Then, kai pistois en Christo Jesu, faithful ones in Christ Jesus. The addressees are saints or people set apart from the evil age and the present cosmos to share in the dominion of the Son of Man. 
I'll say that again. The saints, by definition, are these addressees. They're people set apart from the evil age and the present cosmos to share in the dominion of the Son of Man. Their lives are called being saved, not perishing. The derivation of the term saints, in my view, may well come from the apocalyptic night vision of Daniel in Daniel 7, especially verses 13 and 14 and 27. That title, Son of Man, appears 52 times, mostly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself in a self-designation in the Gospels. Saints then refers to people who are the objects of sanctifying grace. Again, sanctifying grace by a participation in the active spiration of the Spirit by the Father and the Son. In other words, they, we, are swept up in the breath of the Father and the Son, which is the Spirit who is proceeding love. The addressees then are saints. Saints are swept up by a grace participation in the active participation or the active spiration of the Spirit by the Father and the Son. So faithful ones in Christ Jesus further identifies these addressees. It's not two separate people, two separate groups. <laughs> like the saints and the faithful ones. It's saints and those who, as saints, are participants in the fidelity of Jesus Christ, which is another way of saying that they, we, as those who were created in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.10, are participants in the passive spiration of the Holy Spirit who pours out the otherworldly love of God in our innermost interior being called the heart. That pouring out of that otherworldly love of God in our innermost interior being makes us ultimately the habitual lovers of God and of all humankind. And in fact, all of the creation that proceeded and does proceed from God. This love is the good that overcomes evil in Romans 12.21. Another reason why I chose to call Ephesians Paul's primal epistle is that it seems to be addressed to all saints and participants in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in all times of this age that was inaugurated with the Christ event and which closes with his universal appearance when every eye sees the one who is pierced and all flesh experiences the salvation of God. Ephesians 1.1 then reads this way, from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to, colon, saints and participants in the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father, Sounds like Pastor Brown's message, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, grace here is sanctifying grace, which is conveyed to the addressees through this epistle. Through the teaching of this epistle, sanctifying grace is actually applied and conveyed. Sanctifying grace is a created participation in the active spiration of the Spirit or the breathing eternally of the Spirit by the Father and the Son. To know the Father and the Son in the breathing of the Spirit is eternal life, said Jesus in John 17, 3. Peace, by definition, is the messianic livingness in Christ Jesus. That is the result of the blood of Christ's cross. This otherworldly peace, my peace I give you, not as the world gives it. This otherworldly peace is experienced as the fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
who pours out the love of God in our hearts, Romans 5, 5, which becomes a participation in passive spiration so that those who are participants in the faithfulness of Jesus become graced imitators of God, who is love. They become participants in the divine solution to the problem of evil, and they become agents in the redemption of history and of time itself. Ephesians 5.16. Now, I'm going to move into the climactic phase of the message. All of this was in one sense to build up to it, to Mark 14. Now, the one who is called our father, that in itself is so profound as to defy description, is called the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, also in Ephesians 1.3. Ephesians 1.3 kicks off the prelude of this primal epistle of Paul, the digest of it all, 1.3 to 14. It kicks it off with a prelude that extends all the way through verse 14. Here in 1.3 is where doing and living theology cross-pollinate with the doctrine of the mystery. Ephesians 1.3, Praised be, or blessed be, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you the Son of the Blessed One, the Messiah? I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming on the right hand of the omnipotence on the clouds of heaven. Some people may think that's the second advent. You know what it is? Caiaphas and everybody else in that room seeing Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's the Son of Man at the right hand of omnipotence coming with the clouds of heaven because it was through the just and mysterious law of the cross that God overcame evil by his omnipotence being invested in his self-sacrificing love. There's the lion. He turns quickly. He sees what? A slaughtered lion. Look, the Son of God, the Son of Man, coming in the clouds of heaven, seated at the right hand of the omnipotent power. Where do you turn and you see a crucified, cursed man, beaten beyond recognition, hanging on a tree. The second advent has no improvement on that. That's the lens in which we see. God, who is irreducibly as to his act and his essence and his name and his being, love. So, we have it right here. Blessed is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is this blessed one of whom Jesus is the Son? He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To the question put by Caiaphas, the high priest and the chief inquisitor of what was a series of kangaroo court trials and false accusations. The inquisitor. Are you the Messiah, the son of the one who should be praised, the one who is uniquely blessed? In Mark 14, 61, Jesus answered, this is pretty direct, I am. Not only is it I am, it's the I am that was uttered in the burning bush to Moses. It's the I am that I am. It's the self-existent God. It's God speaking in a son. It's God speaking as the son. I am. And then he added, and you... Plural, you including you, Caiaphas, will see the Son of Man seated at the right of omnipotence and coming with the clouds of heaven. You say, how can we prove that Caiaphas will see him? Because Caiaphas saw him crucified and was among those who was mocking him. 
When he was mocking him, he was mocking the one who is seated on the cross at the right hand of the omnipotent power. The omnipotent power of God was revealed in a crucified lamb. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right of omnipotence and coming with the clouds of heaven. Look, the Lion of the tribe of Judah comes with the clouds of heaven seated on a throne at the right hand of the omnipotent power. Whoa, I turn, I see a crucified man on a tree. That's the mystery. This son of man of Danielic fame, of the fame of Daniel's apocalyptic vision, is none other than Jesus, whom Caiaphas did in fact see lifted up on the cross. The son of man who is seated at the right hand of omnipotence, and who comes on the clouds of heaven, is none other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the stigma of the cross, the offense of the cross. This speaks to the mystery, which is the law of the cross. Again, from the profound influence by Bernard Lonergan, another maligned servant of God. In his subject, of redemption, thesis 17. It reads like this. This is why the Son of God became man, died, and was raised again. Because divine wisdom has ordained and divine goodness has willed not to do away with the evils of the human race through power, but to convert those same evils into a supreme good according to the just and mysterious law of the cross. You want justice? There's justice. Elie Wiesel recalls the time when a father had to watch his son hang from a gibbet in a Nazi concentration camp. And he saw the grief of this father and the pain of this son, the torture. And someone in the crowd that were forced to watch it said, where is God? And someone said, right there on that gibbet hanging with his father grieving at his feet. There is God. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God, whom Jesus sat at the right hand of, is reconciling the world. Not through power, not through overcoming, not through sending people to hell, which is exactly the delight of fundamentalist Christians who call themselves Christians who have the blasphemous audacity of labeling themselves as followers of Christ. They think that's what justice is. Justice is a judge being judged by the will of God, which is salvific of all undeserving humanity. Undeserving is a, <laughs> an understatement. At the heart of the mystery, then, is this just and mysterious law of the cross. At the heart of the mysterious law of the cross is Jesus. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Who is the slaughtered Paschal lamb. The son of man who is also the eternal son of the blessed one. The eternal son of the blessed one. There's only one of those. 
is seated at the right hand of omnipotence and seen coming with the clouds of heaven precisely as the crucified and cursed one. And this is precisely because divine wisdom has ordained, divine benevolence has willed not to do away with the evils of the human race through power, we could say force, but to convert those same evils into a supreme good according to the just and mysterious law of the cross. This divine wisdom is precisely that which is judged foolishness. It's determined to be nonsense by those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. What is? The word of the cross is the power of God to who? To those who are being saved. What is the Christian way of life? Being saved instead of perishing. Jesus came with the clouds of heaven at the right side of the omnipotent power of God when he came to suffer and to die on the cross. That evil is to be transformed into a supreme good according to the just and mysterious law of the cross is a process I like to call instauration. Now, again, as we wind down, the one who is called our Father, teach us to pray, Lord Jesus, our Father, what a way to start. My father's your father. The one who's called our father is now in one three called the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The father of our Lord Jesus Christ is God who is the one who should be praised. Are you the unique eternal son of the one who is to be praised and blessed? No doubt Caiaphas got charismatic and raised the one who should be blessed. He was going to do something else dramatic. He was going to rip his garments when Jesus said, I am. Because that's, you see, is blasphemy. You know how many people are standing in pulpits today across this world in various time zones? that are calling the cross, the law of the cross, foolishness. Oh, they'll say Jesus died for your sins. But they won't realize that God chose to overcome evil by the just and mysterious law of the cross. Because they will supplement the message, Jesus died for your sins, and he's coming again, and he's really ticked off, and he's going to send the majority of humanity to hell. That is not the gospel. That is more like Caiaphas. That's more like the Pharisees. That's more like the enemies of the cross of Christ because they're calling the cross and the word of the cross foolishness while they claim to piously proclaim the cross of Christ. As it was then, so it is today. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ together are the single originating principle of the sanctifying grace and the harmonizing peace that's the result of the reconciliation of the world by God in Christ on the cross. As the Holy Spirit was spirated eternally breathed from the Father and the Son as a single originating principle. So grace and peace come to us and are coming today from us, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as a single originating principle. SOP usually means standard operating procedure. SOP now means 
single originating principle. I and my father are one. We are a single originating principle of grace and peace. So where does the Holy Spirit come in? Oh, he comes in. I'm holding off on the Holy Spirit, not to de-emphasize, but to emphasize him. The Father and the Son act in concert. When God speaks in a son, he speaks as the son. If you've seen me, you've seen my father. They act as one. And this is the case with the internal, eternal procession of the spirit. This is the case with the external procession. There's another procession comes from God, but it's not God. Eternal processions are God from God, as the Nicene Creed said. True God from true God, light from light. True God from true God. But the creation is from God, but not God. The mystery has to do with all creation becoming all in all with God, with God all in all. And so this is the case with the external procession of creation. It's the same with providence, as we'll see, and with reconciliation. God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit act as one. But there are countless sons and daughters of God. But there's only one instance of divine sonship, one son who is divine. There's only one divine son. He is the son, the son of the blessed one, Caiaphas. He is the son of the blessed one, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, said Peter in one of his few statements that were correct. And Jesus said, blessed are you. Simon, son of Jonas, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father in heaven. The son proceeded from the father eternally. Cross-pollinating with DLT, as Lonergan put it again, God the father neither made his own and only son out of pre-existing matter, nor created him out of nothing. That's what he did with creation. He created out of nothing, as we'll see on Wednesday, perhaps. But from eternity generates him out of his own substance as consubstantial with himself. That's good theology. As the Father is the eternal, unbegotten one who is worthy of praise, the blessed one. So the Lord Jesus Our Lord Jesus Christ is the only eternally begotten son of the blessed one. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? The son of the one who is worthy of praise. I am. The Lord Jesus Christ is our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1 2, the Father is our Father. In 1 3 of Ephesians, our Father is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1 2, Jesus Christ is the Lord, with the implication that He's the Lord of all. He's the Lord of all. He's the Lord of all Muslims. He is the Lord of all Buddhists. He is the Lord of the living and the dead. He's the Lord of those who wouldn't dream that he's their Lord. And when he reveals himself, as he is now to thousands and thousands of individual people of other faiths, they come to the realization that not 
I just got saved, but here's the one who saved me. All the way back on a bloody tree. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, which is every eye has pierced him. And to see him is to experience so great a salvation. I can't really say I was saved on such and such a date. I just, on such and such a date, I realized I was saved in April of AD 30, circa. That's what I call a better preterism. Yes, there's a lot about A.D. 70 and a lot that I'll be teaching about it, but there's a whole lot more about A.D. 30 in which everything was to tell us die, finished. In Ephesians 1 2, Jesus Christ is the Lord with the implication that he's Lord of all. The Lord means Lord of all. In Ephesians 1 3, Jesus Christ is our Lord implying that he is the Lord of each and of all. He is Lord of the living and the dead. So already, as we close, there is an interplay, we could say, a dialectic, if you want to use the fancy language, a dialectic interplay of universality and individuality. As drastic as God's universalistic plan is, that's how drastic his individualistic plan is is the universal impact of this cross so gracious and otherworldly and so phenomenally indescribable is also the impact of our interior individual being our very human heart cardia spirit pneuma centrally you you central radically transformed not by your will, by the will of God, which is entirely and universally and univocally salvific. He is the Lord of the living and the dead. And so the interplay of universality and individuality is an interaction of individuality and universality with community. When we, the community is the believer that realizes this and then realizes this about other believers and comes into relation with other believers and realizes that their relation with other believers is because of a relation with the three divine persons of the triune God. And that's a church. And the church realizes that it exists for the world, not against the world. I don't know how much Christian doctrine is wasted in trying to categorize all the people that we should judge and dismiss. Because of the most virulent, blasphemous, evil of self-righteousness. The father who is our father is called father. And you may call him Abba. Precisely because of his relation to the son first, a relation of paternity. And secondly, to us by relation of paternity. Only the son is eternally begotten. He is eternally related to the father as eternal filiation to eternal paternity. And he is our brother, our elder brother. We're all brothers and sisters, siblings, call it. We're all siblings. There's only one elder brother. And he's not ashamed to call you his siblings. Look, 
I love what Hebrews says. Look, it is I. Jesus speaking to the father. Look, it's me. And the children that you gave to me, which is the rest of humanity in all of its times, redeemed through the blood of Christ's cross. That's the gospel. Thank you, Father. My prayer is that you will take this message and allow us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Allow us to see the I am that I am, the self-existent one, the totally free one, impaled on a tree. That we may see the Son of Man at your right side, Father, and by seeing him to see Christ and him crucified. For the more we recognize that the Son of Man is Jesus Christ and him crucified, the more we appreciate him in his resurrection splendor, in his ascension, in his glorious exaltation to the ultimate height of the ultimate height of heaven at your right side. For he has willed us to be crucified with him so that we would be glorified with him. We don't look forward to our crucifixion with Christ. We look backward at it. We look forward to our glorification with him. Grant us this hope, this expectation. And may this hope bleed from our pores to people around us who have not this hope. Who are in this world without God and without hope. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.